It was great to do. Uh, it was great to respond to Simon's great word because because uh, actually this week there's actually just a few of us here, so it kind of emphasised the point of us. Um, and I know his word wasn't just about numerical growth, but uh, it kind of illustrated the point where um, we're wanting to make space for for Jesus in our lives, but then we could. If we were cynical about it, we could kind of say, oh, what's the point? There's, you know, things are small, blah, blah, blah. But actually, um, it, was a great, it was a great encouragement to have the, have the eyes of faith, wasn't it? To have the eyes of faith. And um, there's, no, there's no limit to what Jesus can do. There's no, um, there's no kind of uh, ceiling to what he can do, whether, we, whether it's on a day that we feel strong and, and powerful and resilient, or whether it's on a day when we feel... Um, weak and inferior there's really no limit there's no kind of emphasis on how we feel actually God's heart towards us is is for growth and uh, expansion and um, personal growth numerical growth everything so um, it's not about how we feel about it it's good good to remember that and um, I think in the kind of in the in the performance driven world that we we have you know to to build higher, do more, extend further. There can be, um, even as we kind of, even as we read the Bible, we could feel like, oh, right, I need to, I need to be more like this now, and I, I need to try this, and oh, I haven't been doing that recently, and uh, so I need to change, change on this one. And there can be a lot of kind of emphasis on what we need to do, um, when actually, if we really, really encounter Scripture in the true, truest sense it's actually it's a story of a relationship isn't it it's a story of a relationship and when when we read books like like the book of jonah or um we read about moses or uh we read about um uh, gideon or all all these different ones all these different ones uh joseph and all these different characters i think the danger is that kind of almost as they as we look for them to set a godly example for us but the danger is that we purely say right this is this is how you need to be to be a Gideon or to be a Joseph this is this is how you need to be this is what scripture is saying what I need to be like more like this and that's absolutely not the message of scripture it's not the message of try harder to become more like this it's the message of a relationship that's so important. When we read scripture, it's the message of a relationship. It's a message of uh, a personal relationship and a personal dialogue with God, which we'll read about when we, when we look at Jonah today. But it's also a message of God's heart for a, for a big people, for a big family. His, his message is for relationship. Everything we read in scripture should be through the perspective of what is this saying about relationship what is this saying about the big story of how god wants to increase and cultivate and develop this relationship with us with with one another with the nations everything so that's the that's the heart of scripture not a try harder but a, an invitation to to relationship everything speaks about that that gospel and um, we can um, we'll look at we'll look a little bit at, uh, at Jonah's life today um, in fact we could uh, we could read the we could read the final part of the uh, of the story of of Jonah's life last time Lawrence was preaching and um, he was he was helping us to unpack this um, part of the story where there's the the, the repentant, um, the repentant, eager to change, and um, eager to, eager to follow God, eager to um, stop the kind of the journey that they've been on, city of of Nineveh. We we heard about that with Lawrence last time, and now we have this, uh, now we have this dialogue uh, between between Jonah and, and God, and we see how he feels about what's happened to the, to the city. So um, we'll start in, in chapter 3, verse 10. It says, when, when God saw what they did, when God saw what they did, 
how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord. said, oh Lord, is, is it not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better to me, for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be so angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he, till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up, the next day God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry enough, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labour, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. The end of the story. <laughs> Amazing. Father, we... We thank you for this uh, peculiar text and uh, we ask, Holy Spirit, just in these minutes, would you, would you be our guide, would you be our teacher, Holy Spirit, you say of yourself that you will guide us and reveal all truth to us. We just reflect that promise back to you right now, Lord God, and say, would you guide us in truth? Would you guide us in the way with this story lord come be our teacher come come soften our hearts come open our minds illuminate our understanding and make us ones who are eager to do what the word says and not just to hear what the word says help us lord in these moments that we have in jesus name amen amen so we said about how does scripture um not show us oh this is how you need to be like and Jonah particularly does not show us how you need to be like so um, that's the first thing that we need to imagine that um, as much as we as much as we kind of maybe have a sentimental love for the story of Jonah we've probably heard it a lot of times in in Sunday school and seen like veggie tales about it or, or whatever it's a kind of it's a famous go-to story but it's actually quite a dire story, really. And you would actually even ask the question, why does this get talked about so much in kids', uh, in kids church? I guess it's because of the whale, this amazing moment with the whale, this one line about the whale or the big fish. But it's actually, the story's very little about the whale. It's a kind of, it's a memorable fact, isn't it? But it's actually very little about the whale. It's one, it's one verse of the whole story of Jonah is about, is about the whale. He's, he's come, hasn't he, onto the scene as, as a recognised prophet of God. There's a backstory of him bringing revelation to the kings and there's a, there's a what you could say, a track record there. He, he's a prophet of God. But in what we read, what we've read over these weeks through this story, there's not much good 
about this man. There's not much good about this story. So um, I've, I've, um, I've worked on building sites before and uh, building site humour is very harsh humour. It's very hard, very harsh, very kind of offensive humour. And uh, one, of the, one of the kind of classic building site jokes is that if somebody's um, not perceived as being that good at their work on the building site and then they make noises about maybe I'm going to go and work on this other building site that what people say is oh well I'll even pay the taxi money for you to get there you know so they kind of so don't want them there that they'll even phone up and book a taxi and get, pay the taxi money just to to send the person away this is a bit like that isn't it as Lawrence said last time if you need if, if you need someone sending a whale to come and collect you, to get you on track with where, where the Lord wants you to go, then something's quite not right. It's an, amazing, it's an amazing miracle, the idea of this, but something's quite not right if you need a whale to come along to get you from where you are in your resistance to where you should be going, then it's a bit of a, bit of a problem. And uh, you could almost imagine... Um, you know, one day, one day, one day we'll meet Jonah, won't we? In in glory, we'll we'll meet him, and can imagine his his reflections on his time. You know, what was it? What was it like? Oh, who are you? You know, oh, I'm Jonah. Oh, Jonah, I've I've heard of you. I've heard of you. Um, how did your how did your mission go on this on this planet on this earth? How did it go? Well, well, I really. I really hated what God asked me to do, and um, I went the opposite way to where he wanted me to go. And um, I nearly killed a whole ship full of people in the, in the process. And um, I threw myself off the side in the end, and the Lord had to send a whale to pick me up and kind of send me back in the right, right direction because I was so resistant. And uh, I got spat out. And then I said, OK, I will go and take the message to the city. But I so didn't want to go, and I was so kind of teenagerish about it that I actually, I took seven days to walk into the city. <laughs> so a city smaller than Helsinki, and he took seven days to walk across the city. <laughs> he must have really been dragging his, his feet. I took seven days. And then when I came, my moment came to, to reveal the message that God had for me to say, I condensed it right down to five words. I said five words. I didn't mention God in my message. I said five words, and then I just left the city. And um, my, message was, my message was so successful that... Um, because I knew God was going to be too kind. So I was really furious about how successful my message was. Imagine that. Imagine we go out to the street corners now to preach and we're furious because there's a success. You know, how dare you actually turn back to God? I can't believe it. I'm saying my message and here you all come and now you all want to come and turn and restore your lives back to God. How dare you even do that? That was his, that was his attitude. In fact, he might even reflect, hmm, I'm not sure why my story is the first one on the Sunday school curriculum every, every time. <laughs> he might think that. He was, um, we could say, couldn't we? He, as, as, we as we read, he, he comes back onto the, onto the hillside, away from the city. He was more enthusiastic about seeing a mass destruction blow these people up, destroy them. He was enthusiastic about that. More enthusiastic than seeing a mass forgiveness and a mass restoration. It's quite something, isn't it? His national pride, his national pride took over and he wasn't able to access any kind of compassion to see these people restored. On the one hand, his national pride was a good indicator. These people did pose a huge risk to his country, to his society. Let's not pretend. This wasn't just a bit, oh, don't really like them. They posed a huge national security threat to his nation. That was really true. But his, his nationalistic pride 
went so far that he couldn't contemplate the idea that these people could be restored and added back into, into God's, God's kingdom. It's interesting to see, it's interesting that we see the supernatural at work throughout his story, don't we? We see um, him having a conversation with God, hearing God. It's quite, quite supernatural. Um, we see that as he, as he goes the opposite way, that the storm stirs up. It's quite a kind of supernatural turn of events. The whale, of course, um, his very poor message comes obviously evidently comes with power that it has the power to change even though he didn't want it to um, this plant grows up around him we see the supernatural throughout his story and what i think what we could say is that we long to see we long to see this don't we we long to see the supernatural but it's not necessarily um, a confirming thing of God's pleasure. This whale coming is not a, God can do it, he, he does do it. But he's not saying, oh, so much well done, Jonah, that now I send the whale to come. It's quite the opposite, isn't it? And we see this, we see this in many occasions where we think, oh, the supernatural is like a, you know, a confirmer of, of holiness or, you know, God's, God's favor all of that, when actually, actually we think of like the, uh, the Israelites and the, the manna coming down, wow, amazing, manna, manna coming down from heaven, wow, wow. They're actually, they've actually left on this amazing journey, this amazing invitation. God has brought them out of this slavery with this amazing promise that they will enter into this new land, that they don't need to worry about anything, that he'll, He'll guide their path, he'll keep them warm, he'll keep them safe. They'll go on this path and they'll enter into this promised land. It's, like, it's almost like it's a supernatural moment. They don't need to care about anything. They just need to follow the Lord. And they start to complain about what, what are we going to have to eat? When's, where's our meat going to come from? Um, some of them even some of them even want to go back um, because there was really nice cucumbers there. That's what they say. It's literally what they say. Do you remember the, you know, we say, we say you know, rose-tinted spectacles, well, cucumber spectacles. Do you, remember the, do you remember those great cucumbers, you know? Yeah, we had to work back-breaking work. We got whipped and beaten. Loads of our kids got taken away and killed at times. It was, a, it was a terrible, oh, but we had so good cucumbers there. You know, why can't we, Lord, why have you inflicted this upon us that we've now lost our, lost our cucumbers? That's what they say. That's what they say. He's, they've lost the whole perspective of this, this promise. He was, the Lord was going to take them directly in to this place. What did it say about the land? What did it say that the land had? Fruitful. fruitful land, milk and honey. This fruitful land. This is where you're going. This is my vision. Here we go. Oh, well, what meat are we going to have? Who's going to send something to eat? And so the Lord sends the, the Lord sends the manna, but it's it's actually it's actually a sign of kind of frustration. They've put their comfort above following the Lord. And this is, this is a bit the same. This, the, the, all of these encounters, we could go, wow, what an amazing guy. If we peel it back, these, these supernatural moments are not kind of affirmations of his character. They're just God doing what's needed to, to, fulfill, the, to fulfill the plan. So the, the book ends very abruptly, doesn't it? We don't know we don't know what happens to Jonah after this moment where he's outside of the city, he's made this little shelter for himself and he's having a big huff and we don't know then what happens. We don't know if he dies there, we don't know if he kind of somehow retires and just disappears. We don't, 
We literally don't know what happens. We don't know. It's an abrupt ending. Why, why the abrupt ending? Why that, why that sudden ending? It kind of, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not left with this satisfied sense of, oh, I know what happens in the end, and it was a great ending. I'm not, none of us are left with that. Why this, why this abrupt ending? I think, I don't think they ran out of paper to write it on or something. It's just, I think it's a deliberate, it's a deliberate thing. This is, this is the word of God to us, isn't it? It's not about the kind of happy ending. It's, this, is, this is the word of God to us. And I think the, in this case, the word of God, the story of Jonah, I think actually, dare I say it, dare I say it, I think the main character is you and me. I think it, it ends, you end, with a, you end with a mirror in your hands. You end with questions. You end with questions that you ask of yourself. You end with mysteries. What's my heart really like? What's my, what's my motivation here? It ends with a cloud of, of mystery and a, a mystery that we left. We can't project it onto anybody other than ourselves. I think that's how, that's how the book ends. It, it's a lot about us. It's a lot about us. Jonah sees himself as basically all right. I'm not sure how he kind of carries his mistakes or how he in kind of interacts around those. We don't really hugely know much about that, about his heart. But I think he basically sees himself as all right. His attitude towards the city kind of points us in that direction, that the city is less all right than him, and he's quite all right. That seems to be his kind of hierarchy of, of how it goes. And for them, for the people in the city to receive mercy, it churns his stomach, doesn't it? It literally churns his stomach, like the, like the, um, the parable of the, the prodigal son. It's the same flavour, isn't it? That there's the older son who thinks he's basically all right, the, the younger son who's gone off and done all of this and is then restored back into the father's household. The older son, it's, it's stomach churning for him to witness this. It's impossible for him to stomach this injustice that he perceives. That's, that's the way that story goes. And this, this is much the same. Well, I'm the prophet of God. I've done this. I've done this. Here I am. I'm from the correct nation. I'm from the correct people. Here am I. How dare you be kind? I knew you would do that. That's why I didn't want to bring this message. Because I knew you were kind. I knew you'd let them off. I knew you wouldn't go through with what you said you were going to go through with. He gives himself a big let off. There's no kind of review of what's happened. You know? That God has to send a whale as a taxi to get him to go. We don't, there's, there's little reflection on that. And there's a big judgment of this other people. And that's, um, that's sadly the, the human heart a lot. That's why, that's why we can say this story is a lot to do with us. Our standard for others is up here, isn't it? Our standard for others' behaviour, for others' repentance, for others to apologise, for others to take account for what they do, for others' generosity, for others' kindness, for others' lack of impatience, is way up here. But our standard to ourselves is down here. Oh, well, you know, I was impolite because I was rushed and I didn't have time and um, I didn't really um, have any moment to think and all of this, so I can kind of let myself off of that one.
I chose to cut this corner on this thing because I've got all this going on, don't you realise? And so it's okay to let myself off. But when we observe that in someone else, how can they do that? How can they be so slack? Don't they care? Different levels, how we judge our own heart, how we judge other people's hearts. But we can imagine the, imagine the scene at this city. Jonah's there on the outside. Poor me, I haven't put a foot wrong. Now they get away with it all. He's not entering into the grace of God. He's not applying the grace of God. He's not applying the goodness of God that's applied into the city. He's not applying that into his own heart. In the city, imagine it, imagine it. These are an evil people. They're about to get blown up. They're about to get blown up. But God is so kind that he doesn't blow them up and he interacts with them and they come to repentance. They come to this new chapter where they were moments from being blown up. Imagine the scenes. I think there was, I think there was weeping and repentance, but there must have been joy and celebration, surely, surely. They're about to be blown up and suddenly it's diverted away. There must have been joy. There must have been celebration. There must have been how kind God is. Look at what we were like. Look at what we were doing. Look at our culture. And God has come and he's so kind that he's given us this other chance. He's given us this other way. They must have been going crazy with some kind of street parties or something. Surely. I don't know. It doesn't say. It doesn't say. We know they repented, but there must have come joy. Surely. There must have come conviction. You know? Look at how we, look at how we were. There must have come self-examination. Look at what we were doing. Look at our whole attitude. Look at the evil that we've been doing. Conviction must have come into that city. We think of, um, we think of, I'm quite interested in what's happened around different revivals, what we call revivals through history. And one of the, one of the characteristics of revival is this deep conviction, isn't it? They say it's kind of, if we're, if we're judging, is this, is this happening? Is this a revival? One of the deep kind of traits or characteristics of revival is this kind of deep, deep, overwhelming sense of conviction that just kind of seems to come from nowhere. It's not coming from preaching. It's not coming from someone saying, oh, let me show you the way. This is how you are, and now you need to be like this. And it's not that. It's just the, the deep wretchedness that people feel. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of amazing revival stories around. This, um, this, this Hebridean re revival in the, the islands to the north of Scotland is an amazing story of revival where the church on the island has been kind of legalistic and dead. Nothing really alive in that church. A small number, a small number of the kind of ministers of this church decide this is, this is not how we see the life of the church to be. And so they, they start to pray. So um, they pray that it will change. And... Um, the nature, of the, the nature of the town was that churches were getting ready to close because they were, they were dead. Young people mostly going to bars 
to drink. That was the, that was the complexion of society. Okay, so not that different maybe than what we could say now. You know, a kind of a preoccupation with kind of pleasure and entertainment and not an interest in spirituality. So as a, as a result of this discussion, seven men and one of the elders of the church decided to pray and seek God for the Hebrides Isles. They met in an old barn by the side of the road three times a week. So, so convicted, three times a week they met and prayed and sought the face of God. They knelt in the straw of the old barn and God reminded them of a verse in scripture from 1 Chronicles. If my people who are called, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. They began to pray according to this verse. At the same time this was going on, two elderly ladies, two sisters, one's 82, one's 84, were also praying continually in their cottage for God to come with his power and visit the island. One night, after five months of, of doing this, the men were praying, suddenly the barn was filled with the glory of God. At the same time, the little cottage where the sisters were praying was also filled with the glory of God. They knew that God had heard and it was about to descend in power among them. God instructed the sisters to write to, to Duncan Campbell, who was a well-known preacher and a man of prayer. God told the sisters that the Lord was calling him to preach during his visit and that they should continue to pray. God also told the sisters that he would come and that he would begin what he's doing in two weeks' time. So he, he wrote back and said, I can't come. My diary's full. I can't come to be with you. Maybe contact me again in a year and I'll come. But they said to him, but God's coming in two weeks. <laughs> and they continued to pray. As they prayed, all of his schedule got removed so that he decided to come. The first night of the meeting in the church at Barvas, nothing much happened, but one of the praying deacons said to Duncan Campbell, do not be discouraged, it is coming. I can already hear the sounds of heaven's chariot wheels. We'll have another night of prayer and then we'll see what God is going to do. About 30 people then went to a nearby cottage and continued to pray into the night. It was about 3 a.m. God swept into the cottage and about a dozen of them laid prostrate on the floor, unable to move. Something had happened, revival had come. They left the cottage. As they left, they found the lights burning in every house as men and women were seeking God. They found three men lying by the side of the road under the conviction of their sin, crying out to God. This is hard-working men. This is not, these are not hipsters. These are like hard-working kind of farm men at the side of the road, crying out to God to have mercy on them. Imagine it. Imagine that. The events of the second night will never be forgotten by those who were there. <laughs> Buses came from the four corners of the island. Seven men were being driven to the meeting in a butcher's truck when suddenly the spirit fell on them in great conviction. They were all converted before they reached the church. So. <laughs> Sounds easy, doesn't it? As the preacher preached, tremendous conviction swept down upon the people and tears fell down the faces of those present so deep was the distress of some that their voices could be heard outside. The meeting finally ended and people began to move outside. A young man began to pray under a tremendous burden of intercession. He prayed for three quarters of an hour. And as he prayed, people gathered outside the church until there was twice as many people now outside the church as they'd been inside. 
When he stopped praying, an elder gave out Psalm 132. And as the great congregation began to sing, the people streamed back into the church again, and the meeting continued until 4 a.m. <laughs> so he's just getting ready to leave, and then they all have to come back in again, but twice as many. The moment people took their seats, the Spirit of God, in great conviction, began to sweep through the church, and hardened sinners wept and confessed their sins. As the meeting was finally closing, a messenger hurried to the preacher. Come with me. There's a crowd outside of people at the police station. They're weeping and they're in awful distress. We don't know what's wrong with them, but they're calling for someone to come and pray with them. That's what you'd imagine, hope to see outside the police station, isn't it? Amazing. Describing the scenes outside the police station, the minister later declared, Oh, I saw a sight I never thought possible, something I shall never forget. Under a starlit sky, men and women were kneeling everywhere by the roadside. Outside the cottages, even behind the peat stacks, crying for God to have mercy on them. Nearly 600 people had been then making their way to church when suddenly the Spirit of God had fallen upon them, calling them to fall to their knees in repentance. It goes on and on, but it's an incredible thought, isn't it? That the, the, un, the unmovable, the unmovable can be shaken to cry out for God's mercy. What an incredible thought. Jonah's attitude is, it's not fair that this should happen. We hear that story, we hear it with great kind of joy and great inspiration of what God can do. But his attitude in the moment is, this is not fair. This is not fair. Why should they be let off? He wanted to see the big destruction to prove him right in his self-righteousness. What he couldn't, as he watched from afar, what he couldn't embrace is the idea that the grace and the mercy of God that he sees in the city is also for him. That he also needs it. Like the older son in the prodigal story, he can't see his need to embrace it himself, even though the invitation is there. He feels the scandal of seeing the, the love and the mercy of God to this city, but he can't see his need for the scandal of himself. For some of us it's for some of us it's a challenge to get over our own sin not to minimise it, but that God's love can pour out onto a city of abhorrent evil, that there is a way for you and me to get over our sin, that we don't need to spend our time looking upon ourselves in harsh judgment as Jonah's judgment of the city. If there's, if there's sin in your life, you can walk free of it right now. If there's conviction in your heart right now, you can stay angry at yourself and judge yourself or you can receive the free gift 
of God's mercy, you can walk free right now. At the cross, forgiveness, victory, freedom is ours. It's the biggest scandal going. Just like the scandal over the city, it's the biggest scandal going. It's huge. It's huge. But I think, but today there's an invitation. Get over your sin. Get over your sin. Get over your sin. Drink my mercy. Come to me. Come into the, come into the scandal. So get over your sin. some of it, for some of us, it's get over their sin. The sin in this city, as we said, was awful. But the bigger the sin, the bigger the wrong, the bigger the mercy, the bigger the invitation, the bigger the grace. There's no scale. As big as it gets, as big as the mercy gets. As big as the kind of feeling of the depravity of what someone has done, the bigger, as big as the grace gets. The cross has defeated every sin that we've done. The cross has defeated every sin that's done against us. The cross isn't just about us apologising. The cross wipes out every wrong that's done against us. It says, doesn't it, that he bore, he bore our shame. He was ashamed, hanging there, naked, mocked, laughed about, thoroughly, thoroughly, ashamed. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. He carries shame onto the cross. If you've been, if you've been ashamed, if you've been ashamed because of what others have done to you, he carries that shame onto the cross. You are free of shame. You're free for others to get over others' sin. It's a big scandal. It's a huge, huge, weighty, unbelievable scandal. But it's true. You need it in your own life. I need it in my own life for my sin. But I also need it in my life for the sins of others in order for us, for me to recognise the grace and the love and the mercy of God onto them as well. A preoccupation with their sin leaves us, like Jonah, as this bitter onlooker, withdrawn, on the edge, locked down, built this barricade around. That's the fruit. Waiting, waiting for them to be called out, waiting for them to fall, waiting for them to finally get found out. That's how it leaves us. Actually, actually, like the two brothers in the prodigal story, actually, there could have been an invitation to Jonah to go down into the city and join the crazy grace party. Surely. They needed it. He needed it. Let's go and join the grace party 
and worship God together. Surely that was an option. But we don't know. We don't know what happens with him in the end. I said there's not one good thing really that, that Jonah does. And I did lie a little bit. There is one good thing that he does. And that is that he understands, even though he's suspicious about it, he understands the goodness of God. He knew that God would come at that city with goodness, with mercy. He knew. He knew. It frustrated the socks off of him, but he knew that that's what God was about. That's the most, if we're looking at Jonah as an example, that's the most radical example that he can be for us. The Ninevites were a, like a terrorist state. The worst. The worst. Yet we see the city bear these hallmarks of revival. The, the whole city repenting together. We see them restored, coming back from the brink, forgiven, repentant. As we said, not from a not from a great intellectual explanation, but just from the love and the mercy of God descending on the city. That's what we see. It's a scandalous encounter with the holiness of God. He knew before he even delivered the message, he knew the scandal of God's love was coming. It's incredible, isn't it? He knew it so much that he couldn't bear to be part of it because of his hard heart. But he knew it. I knew he would do that. We can take that and we can apply that into our city. You know, however much we assume, we're here, we're setting up the church, we're putting the chairs out, we're like the kind of doorkeepers of who's in and, and all of that. Actually, God's heart for this city is unimaginable. Unimaginable. His, his mercy for this city, his mercy for this nation is just, we can't even think about how huge it is. From the, the, the criminal and the abuser to the the prideful one, the arrogant one, the most helpless one, the most oppressed one, the most victimised one. His mercy is for everyone. Everyone. It's never ending. It's huge. It is huge. And we're here, this little meeting, but we're on the, we're on the tidal wave of God's heart for this city and this nation. It's not the little bit we can do into it. God's heart is so big for this nation. That's the, that's the God that we are serving. That's the God Jonah was serving. That's the God we are serving. That's the, that's the fruit, that's the outcome that we long for to see. I heard a, I heard a, a, a speaker that I listened to on the podcast, but he was talking about his dad. And he was talking about his dad was very resistant to coming to faith. They had a, they had a very um, uh, kind of Italian Catholic kind of family culture. That was his experience of church and religion. And then the son had come to true faith and filled with the spirit and filled with this zeal for, um, for evangelism and to tell everyone. 
And he would just have time and time again this awkward conversation with his dad. His dad didn't receive, couldn't receive what this um, message of, of God's mercy. And his, his dad's comeback was, if, if God is real, if God is real in this city, if God is real in this neighbourhood, why have I never heard of him? If God is real, if this is all real, what you say, why have I never heard of, about this? I think we can, we can only be ones who carry that amazing message when we reconcile it for ourselves. That this, this stomach-churning, scandalous grace first is unto me and unto you and unto everyone in this church. We have no merit to be here but we have a scandalous merciful God who did everything in order to win us to himself what a celebration you know Jonah didn't join the grace party but it was going on and we are in the grace party we're in the scandalous party we're in the celebration he's He's done it from, from this destruction where he could blow us up. He's done it and he's invited us into the, the grace party. So our, our, first, our first point, if we want to be ones who actually are introducing the people of this city to this scandal, is, is to know it for ourselves, isn't it? To relish it, to savour it for ourselves. So my invitation to you this summer, as we take our little recess, is just throw your life onto the scandal of God's grace. Find out as much as you can about it. Just enter into it with your, with your thinking. That, that we can't, the same guy who had this difficulty with his father, his father did come to faith in the end. The same guy, he says, one of his phrases is that we can't, we can't give away what we do not ourselves possess. It's a classic line, isn't it? But it's so true. We can't really tell of the grace and mercy of God if we're kind of a bit indifferent to it ourselves and we don't really think we need it. It's huge. It is huge. The city need it. We need it. Let's, let's pray. Let's stop there. Let's pray. I'd love us to pray for an outpouring of just God's radical mercy across this city.